Well, we come now to the reading of God's Word from Mark chapter 7. Pastor Moody's continuing his series, Authentic Christianity. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, but Pastor Moody's going to be really focusing in on verses 5 to 7. So will you turn in your Bibles and then stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 8. Church family, hear God's Word. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And when the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, thank you very much, uh, Pastor Ben, for reading out uh, God's word for us and leading us this morning, and Pastor Eric Dewar and the music team and also Elder Jeremy for giving us such an encouraging update on what God's doing uh, through some of the recent uh, campus uh, ministry. This morning, as we come to God's Word, we come to the second in our series in Authentic Christianity, and today we're going to be exploring Jesus' teaching that authentic Christianity is shown by how we worship. Now, this is the second in our series on authentic Christianity, and as we saw last week, we are defining authentic in a non-technical, straightforward way as that which is genuine or the real thing. And so when we say authentic Christianity, we're simply meaning we are exploring together from God's Word what is the, the genuine way to follow Jesus. What's the real way to follow Jesus. And that's our task as we uh, go through this series together. And last week, and I won't recap the whole sermon last week, but last week we set the context that in Mark's gospel, Mark is contrasting uh, Jesus's teaching and who Jesus is in particular, as we'll see a little later this morning, with the Pharisees and their approach uh, to following God. And this morning, we look at a particular subset of that, of Jesus' teaching as Mark presents it to us, uh, with relation to worship. And as I say, what we will be exploring together today is Jesus' teaching here that authentic Christianity is shown by how we worship. Now, clearly, that's an important Uh, theme for a number of different reasons, but the first might not be immediately obvious, which is that whether you count yourself a religious person or not, 
the matter of worship is significant to you. Uh, Worship, the word worship, simply indicates that which we think is of worth or value. That's what the word originally meant, and that's why it's used in a religious context, because we're saying, of course, that God is of ultimate worth. But we all have to make decisions about what we value, what we think is worthy. Uh, The old uses of this word is revealed by the Anglican prayer book that in the wedding service makes uh, the spouse say, uh, the spouses say to one another, with my body I thee worship. Of course, what the spouse is not saying is that they're bowing down and adoring as God, the, the, their wife or husband, but what they're saying is that they're to declare in the way they physically act towards the other person that their spouse is worthy of great value. And so when we think about what's worshipful and how we worship, we're thinking about what is of real value in our lives. Uh, we, in more contemporary terms, the same idea is revealed by uh, the phrase we sometimes talk about as hero worship. There's a certain celebrity or an actor or a politician perhaps maybe or a leader of some kind or other, a business leader that, that is a hero and has gathered around him or her a certain degree of hero worship. And what is not being said by that is that people literally believe that that individual is God. What's being said is that they encapsulate by the way they live their lives, their attitude to money or their success of making money or the way they present themselves or how beautiful they are, that they encapsulate a certain value that we think is worthy. And so there's a sort of hero worship that develops around them. So this is important whether you're religious or not, but of course, particularly within Christian religious circles, it's significant, and it's significant because there is great confusion about worship, all sorts of different ideas about the right way to worship, um, music, style, how important it is to gather and worship, how that's related to general lifestyle worship and all the rest. And so it's important we think clearly because there's great confusion. But not only is there great confusion about it, also uh, there is typically a lot of passion around it. So the matter of worship raises emotion and passion in God's people in Christian circles. Uh, the, The job, if you don't like receiving lots of Emails, the job you do not want in church life is the pastor of worship and music. People care about it. It's emotive. And therefore, because it's emotive and because there's so many different views on it, it inevitably can become controversial. And again, that means we should think clearly about it. Uh, Not only for ourselves, but for wherever you take um, these words that we're thinking about together in your life and conversations you have with friends or family, that we have a clear idea of what we mean by worship, what Jesus means by worship. And so it's significant for us as a church that we think clearly, but also significant whether you're religious or not, or whether you call this church your church home. And again, what I believe and what we're going to be exploring together that Jesus is saying here is that authentic Christianity is shown 
by how we worship. So let's see the way that Jesus teaches us uh, this from uh, God's Word, from Mark's Gospel. And we're looking at just verses 5 to 7, which is a subset of the overall contrast that Mark is making between Jesus' approach to faith and uh, following God and the Pharisees. And this subset is particularly about worship, as we'll see. Now, when we come to look at the Bible, and if you came to the evening service uh, last week, uh, we looked at what is expository preaching. And expository preaching is where the main theme of the passage is the main theme of the sermon. So we need to think carefully about what the main theme of these verses are in the context of this chapter, in the context of this book, in the context of the Bible. What, what is the main theme here? And one way to grasp the main theme, one of the most significant ways to grasp the main theme, is to look at the structure of a particular passage. And this, these few verses are obviously structured in a very simple way, and they're structured around a question and then an answer. So the Pharisees ask Jesus a question. The Pharisees and the scribes they ask him a question, and Jesus answers it. So this is a Q&A between the Pharisees and Jesus. And that's it. But when we look at it a little more carefully, there's a surprise in this Q&A. And again, one of the ways to, to think about expository preaching is to pay particular, and when you're studying the Bible, to pay particular, particularly careful attention when, when there's something surprising. So the Pharisees come and they ask Jesus about the fact that they're not washing their hands ceremonial, his disciples, and we looked at what that meant then and what it might mean now last week. But that's their question. Why aren't you washing your hands ceremonially? But Jesus' answer goes in a surprising direction. And his answer is not only surprising because he calls them hypocrites, though I'm sure that would have been surprising to them at the time, And his answer is surprising because he quotes from the book of Isaiah about worship. So their question is about ceremonial washing of hands. And what Jesus is saying is your attitude to this and the way you're going about this is showing showing that your, your inauthenticity, that you're worshiping in vain, your inauthenticity, that you're not really following God in the right kind of way, and it's shown by how you worship. That's, the, that's what we're exploring together, the case that I'm making for you from God's Word as we explore it together. And to follow that, we need to follow Jesus' logic. And to follow Jesus' logic, we obviously need to follow where He points us, which is to the book of Isaiah. So if you have a Bible with you, or you can find one in the pew, I encourage you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 29, which is where Jesus is quoting from, Isaiah 29 and verse 13. Now, again, we're looking at things in context and trying to understand what the Bible is actually saying. So when we dive into the book of Isaiah, we need to understand the overall context of what Isaiah is about. So very simply, the book of Isaiah is a call from the prophet Isaiah to Jerusalem that God's people would trust God. They have been tempted instead to trust the local superpowers, Assyria, Egypt, for rescue. And what Isaiah is saying, no, you should just trust God. Trust God and His Word. That's it. And Isaiah's is a message of judgment and of hope. Judgment because they ended up not trusting God and His Word. Hope, though, for those who did 
trust God and His Word, and that hope coalesces around His vision of the second half of Isaiah from chapter 40 onwards, that it lands in the end at the Messiah fulfilled in Jesus and His movement, the new covenant of which Christians, those who are Messiah people today, are a part of, this hope not only for us but for the whole world. That's the message of Isaiah, a call to trust God, judgment for those who do not, hope for those who do, that's fulfilled ultimately in the Messiah that we know now on this side of the cross is Jesus. So that's, that's a freebie for you about the book of Isaiah. Uh, but it's not just a freebie. It's also because we need to understand Isaiah 29, 13 in context. And Isaiah 29, obviously, is uh, a part of verse 13. is part of chapter 29. And chapter 29 is a particular prophetic message from Isaiah to Jerusalem. If you look at verse 1, it says, To Ariel, which will confuse you, because you think, why is he talking about Ariel and who is Ariel? But Ariel almost certainly is Isaiah's nickname for Jerusalem at the time. And for God's people, as they're gathering in Jerusalem for worship, he calls them Ariel almost certainly because we know from the book of Ezekiel that this word Ariel has a sense of burning, a burning fireplace or a burning hearth. So what he's saying is about Jerusalem, that it's burning. It's like if a city or a country's in trouble today, we would say it's burning down. That place is just burning up. It's in trouble. And he's saying, you're burning, Jerusalem. You're burning down. It may not seem like it, but you are. And so that's why he calls it Ariel, and he's concerned with Jerusalem, God's people as they gather and worship. And then we come to verse 13, and if you look particularly Right beforehand, in verse 11, Isaiah says this, And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. Hold on to that. When men give it to one who can read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. He's talking about the vision of God's Word. And what he's saying is, and Alec Matea, whose commentary on Isaiah is, I think, the best that's been written, certainly in in an accessible way, Alec Matea brilliantly points this out. It's a double illustration of the importance and prominence of God's Word in worship. What, What he's saying is, imagine there's a person there, is handed the Bible, And uh, he just says, um, it's shut. I can't be bothered to open it. It's shut. It's closed. It's sealed. And then imagine another person who cannot read. And the Bible's passed to them. They think, well, he cannot read. But he doesn't care that he cannot read. I don't care. I don't need this. It's a powerful illustration of the way that people at the time were ignoring God's Word. They had Bibles in many different translations, and yet they just were becoming dusty on their shelves. If they, if they could read, they didn't care to open it. And if they could not read, it didn't bother them. And then we come to the verse that Jesus quotes from, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near me with their mouth, they've got a lot of words, it's just not God's word. Because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, 
while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So what Jesus is saying here is that the way we worship is revealing who we worship, which is shown by our attitude to the word in worship. For them, it's just shut. It's a closed book and they don't care. Now, as we look at what Jesus says from the book of Isaiah, we need to pay particularly close attention to one term in that quotation that has, I think, of great significance, which is the term vain. He says in Mark chapter 7, quoting from Isaiah, in vain do they worship me, in vain. And that term vain doesn't mean vanity in the sense of someone looking in a mirror and thinking, oh, I'm so beautiful. It doesn't mean that kind of thing. It means vain in the sense of worthless or meaningless. It's the same word used in the Greek translation of the book of Ecclesiastes. Those of you who have read that in old translations will know the old translations say vanity, vanity, everything is vanity, the teacher says. But in more modern translations, it's put meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So what Jesus is saying here, as he quotes from Isaiah, related to the fear of God or the worship of God as they come to Jerusalem, Isaiah's thinking about God's people gathering and worship in Jerusalem, and so Jesus is quoting from it in terms of worship and making that application clear as he, as he quotes from it. He uses this word vain, which means it's meaningless, it's pointless, their worship is in vain. It's not doing anything, it has no significance. But note this, that word, and I think it's deliberately picked by Jesus for this reason, this is what I think, That word in the Bible is used also in particular of idolatrous worship. So Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 9 describes how they worshipped worthlessness and therefore became worthless. Same word. They worshipped vanity and then became meaningless. They worshipped worthlessness and became worthless. Their worship is in vain that it's actually idolatrous worship because the way who we worship is revealed by the way we worship, which is revealed, shown by our attitude to the word in worship. They're not, they're, their worship is actually idolatrous. The, the same word is used by the, this is confirmed by uh, Paul in uh, Romans chapter 1, using the same word when he describes the impact of idolatry, when he says there that those who give themselves to idolatry, their thinking becomes futile becomes the same word, vain, in vain, worthless, meaningless, pointless. What we worship in the end impacts our own sense of value. What we, if we think ultimately that there is no meaning in life, then ultimately our life will have no meaning. If we think there's no meaning to the universe, then ultimately our own lives will have no meaning. And so what Jesus is saying here is that as their attitude to worship is ignoring the commands of God, ignoring the Word of God, the, who they worship is shown by how they worship, in particular their attitude to worship. And now get this, we go from the book of Isaiah, his quotation, and that particular word, vain in Isaiah, now we think about it in the context of Mark's gospel. In Mark's gospel, you'll remember, perhaps from last week, that Mark's gospel is particularly concerned with the identity of Jesus. So he begins in Mark chapter 1, 
says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he tells the story throughout Mark's gospel how Jesus is the Son of God as shown by his various encounters and teachings and all the rest until it comes to Mark chapter 15, verse 39, when Jesus is on the cross and the centurion says, surely this is the Son of God. And so Mark's gospel is, to, is intended to show us who Jesus is, his identity, that he's the Son of God. Now here, in this particular contrast between the right way to follow God and the wrong way to follow God, encapsulated by the Pharisees and the right way encapsulated by Jesus and his teaching, as Jesus quotes from it, he says here, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Obviously, in the original Isaiah, the me is Yahweh, is God, but there's Jesus, the very Son of God, in front of them. And they miss it completely. Because who we worship is shown by the way we worship, which is shown by our attitude to the word and worship. And if the Bible's not in, in, if our worship is driven by our human preferences, all it shows is that what we're worshiping is our human preferences. Because it's the word of God. And if we're worshiping God, we want to hear from God. We, we will be shaped by, by the word of God. Now, having talked about worship that way, we need to take one further step before we apply it to ourselves, which is to make sure we put this teaching in a broader context in Scripture as a whole. And having said that, I, I, <laughs> I say that with some temerity because that's a huge task. But expository preaching should have the main theme of the text, but it needs to be theological in the sense that it needs to be in reflection to the teaching of the particular passage, but also, of course, of the Bible as a whole. It needs to be in context. It needs not to argue against what the Bible says as a whole. But to do that in any, about any theme is tricky, but to do it about this one is particularly tricky, and all I can do is give you four basic building blocks for your thinking as you consider what worship is and as we do as a church. Here they are. First of all, in the Bible, worship is not simply gathered worship. In fact, the case could be made that in the New Testament, the primary thought about worship is for everything we do because now the temple is every, every single Christian is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the temple. Uh, Jesus indicates this when he, in John chapter 4, is uh, engaging with the woman of Samaria when he says uh, the time will come when worshippers will neither worship on this mountain or that, this, that mountain, but his worshippers will worship in spirit and truth. It's no longer one time, one place. Now in the new covenant we have the spirit. The church is the temple. We as the, as the people of God are the temple, whether we are here gathered or at home or at work or teaching in a university or, or doing business, all these things are attitudes and opportunities for honoring God in those contexts. And Paul indicates the same thing famously in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, this now is your spiritual worship your, your, when you present your body as a living sacrifice. So even your physical activities, everything, everything about you now can be worshipped. So that's the first building block is that when the Bible thinks about worship, it means far more, in the New Testament covenant times especially, far more than simply gathered worship. But that said, secondly, the New Testament clearly, if implicitly, teaches that gathered worship is essential for the Christian, essential. 
And uh, you can see this all over the place, but uh, for instance, uh, when the Spirit comes at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, what happens is they gather together, and when people are converted, they're added to their number. And the very word worship means a gathering, and the very word church means a gathering, an assembly. There's this assumption that God's people will gather and worship in, in the book of Acts. They, they come together, or 1 Corinthians, where uh, Paul tells the first Corinthians that the, the, the Corinthians, in first Corinthians, uh, his letter to, the first letter to the Corinthians, he tells them that there should be no de- divisiveness among them, not meaning no division among them, not meaning simply they shouldn't be divisive in the way they speak to each other, but as he teaches throughout uh, the rest of first Corinthians, that they should gather together. So he says, when you come together, when you all come together, he says that twice in Corinthians, assuming that, that they've got to come together, or when he talks about the uh, giving of money to the work of God at the end of First Corinthians, he refers to Sunday, the first day of the week, what we call Sunday, every time on the first day of the week, so the implicit assumption, which is confirmed by uh, the book of um, Revelation, when John there was on the first day of the week in the Spirit, meeting in worship, that when you, when you meet together on the first day of the week, every time, every Sunday, they're meeting together for worship, so there's an implicit assumption throughout the New Testament, that the gathering of God's people is, for worship is an essential for the Christian. If that's the case, then third, what is the purpose of worship? Well, the purpose of worship, and this is something of a surprise, is that when we get of gathered worship is obviously to honor God and praise Him and lift Him up and, and bow before Him and, and give Him the glory that is His due, but the specific opportunity that happens when we gather and worship is that we can encourage and build up each other. And that's affirmed time and again in the New Testament. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 19, when it talks about singing songs, what it says is, talk to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the point is that you're, when you're singing, you're, you're talking to each other. You're saying, we're saying to each other, isn't God great? Isn't He amazing? Isn't He wonderful? We're, we're encouraging each other. That's, we can't do that on our own, but we can do that when we gather. And so that's the particular point of gather worship, to build each other up. And then, of course, the question is, well, how do those two go together, But honoring God and yet encouraging one another? And I think one of the best answers to that is Jonathan Edwards's answer to it in one of his miscellanies. He talks about how Psalm 92 in the Old Testament, which in the ascription at the top of Psalm 92, says that it is for the Sabbath. And, of course, the Christian, Christians meet on the first day of the week, the Sunday, and Jonathan Edwards says, okay, so it's for the Sabbath, so this is particularly intended for the gathering of God's people in worship, and he says, therefore, what Psalm 92 is teaching us is that the, the purpose of worship is for the commemoration and celebration of God's rescue of His people from His enemies. In other words, the particular purpose of worship is that we would celebrate and commemorate what God has done in the gospel, that he, that, that's why I meet on the first day of the week. It's the resurrection Sunday, that Jesus rose again from the dead, that He's victorious over our sins, and therefore, as we do that, as we praise Him for that, we, of course, encourage one another. Isn't it amazing? This is who God is. This is what He's done. Isn't that extraordinary that He is the rescuing triumphant Christ. And so we bow before Him and worship Him. So 
Worship in the New Testament is much broader than simply gathered worship, but gathered worship is essential, and the purpose of gathered worship is that the gospel would be proclaimed as we proclaim it to one another, that we would honor God and therefore encourage each other and reach out to the world. But then, of course, the final building block is what does the Bible say should specifically be done in worship? And, of course, the answer to that is that the New Testament does not have anywhere a, in one place like a, a, a bulletin of a liturgy of a worship service. You know, first do this, then do that. It, does, it doesn't have that. And so what that means is that down through church history still influences many churches today in many different ways, there have been different approaches to it. And fundamentally, and again, I'm summarizing briefly, but I'm trying to give you enough of a framework to help your thinking on this. Fundamentally, there have been two approaches through church history that have shaped churches today. The first approach is to say, what the Bible teaches about gathered worship, you must do in worship, and nothing else. That's the first approach. The second approach is to say, what the Bible teaches about worship you must do, and what the Bible does not specifically address, you're free free to do as you think best. We might call the first approach the prohibitive approach, and the second approach the permissive approach. And both these approaches have had a lot of um, uh, strong advocates down through the years and still have today, but the trouble with them is though they've got a lot of strength to either approach, is they can lead to somewhat ridiculous extremes if not, if not balanced carefully or thought through accurately. For instance, the prohibitive approach, you must do what the Bible says and nothing else, tends to create, or at least it can create, an attitude that is itself prohibitive or restrictive, and it tends to create a kind of atmosphere where things that clearly the Bible doesn't address are sort of put into the same box and then become restrictive also. Um, Thou must wear a black suit just like Jesus did. Clearly the Bible doesn't talk about things like that. There's, I suppose, some principles about dressing modestly, and uh, but but it tends to so that prohibitive approach, though it's got great strengths, can lead to somewhat ridiculous, legalistic, restrictive extremes. But on the same, by the same token, the permissive approach, you must do what the Bible says, but outside of that you're free to do whatever you like, it can also lead to ridiculous extremes. I remember going to one church that shall remain nameless, where in the middle of the service, for one reason or another, they decided that they would all break out in singing. Uh, the baseball song, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, which I couldn't think of any text that would tell me that was specifically wrong, but didn't seem to me like to be a good idea for any number of different reasons. So both those approaches, I think, have their strengths and weaknesses. For me and in our thinking about this, I, I think that the New Testament has a shape, an intended shape of the elements of worship, and that we are to reflect that shape. And I, I call this the directive approach were to follow the New Testament's directions. Edmund Clowney, therefore, a great um, 
scholar from yesteryear in his writing on this, uh, lists the different directions that the uh, New Testament has. So, for instance, there must be the reading of Scripture and the teaching of the Bible. The, the New Testament clearly tells us we should do that, so we must. Uh, the, the, there, should, there should be a singing of songs. So there should be prayers, the, the Lord's Supper and uh, baptism, and, and then some others that are a little hard to know how to apply. For instance, the the greet one another with a holy kiss uh, direction, um, which uh, is honored uh, more in the breach, to quote Shakespeare. In other words, it's, we don't tend to do that. But of course, when you think about it, what that's really saying is that in, in different cultures, and you see this on the, in, in Europe and in other cultures, that there's a greeting for those you know well. There's a kind of cheek bump kiss for those who are family and so what what in the old in the new testament what's really saying is you should greet each other as family and that's why we have a a greeting team at the door because we want you're welcome we're a part of the same family together so we should greet each other like that so there's it's directive but then it needs to be contextualized so there should be variety inevitably but then an overall consistency So what Jesus here is teaching is authentic Christianity is shown by how we worship. The way we worship shows who we worship, which is revealed by our attitude to the Word in worship. Now, that's all the case. How then do we apply it? Let me just give give you three very simple uh, ways that we should apply this. First of all, regeneration. Their heart is far from me. We can wash our hands. We cannot change our hearts. Where is your heart? Is it far from Jesus? Our attitude to the Word and worship, which is Jesus' Word, God's Word, will often reveal where our heart truly is. We must be born again, regeneration, a new heart. Would you cry out to God to give you a new heart? Uh, Second, reformation. We constantly need to make sure that our worship as we gather together is done in a way that is reflective and directed by God's Word. Our worship team here meets for review Every week to think through ways that we can constantly bring our worship more into line with God's Word. Our worship is not to be driven by human preferences. It is to be directed by God's Word. When we put our human preferences first, our worship is the worst. For what we're truly worshiping is what we want. But worship is about what Jesus prefers. But then, uh, finally, not only regeneration, reformation, revival. Surely there needs to be a revival of gathered worship in the church in America. I uh, was stunned uh, some while back, and these are, this is data from before COVID. Uh, we all understand that as we go through COVID, these things 
are somewhat different. But data from before COVID shows that if you want to accurately estimate the number of people in any particular local church, you should multiply the number on any given Sunday by three, three times. And of course what that means is on any given Sunday a third of the people are there. It's quite an extraordinary thing. Again, this is data before COVID. We all know we're going through an unusual season. But of course, what that means is if we want to see three times the number of people in our churches in America, we have a very simple way to do it. Everyone show up. That's it. Three times. Multiplied by three. Uh, I suppose all our ideas about worship to some extent are influenced by or reflected on some of our own experiences. And for me, when I think about worship, I am indelibly marked by my experience of the faithful worshiping church on the mission field and my time on mission field. Now, I spent enough time as a missionary to know that missionary contexts are not romantic and they're not, not ideal. So this is not a romantic nor an idealistic description. These churches that I will refer to certainly had their own problems and, and we must not be overly romantic or overly idealistic about the missionary situation. But I was very struck by their attitude to gather worship. Our little mission team would uh, go around uh, the churches And in order to introduce what we were doing to God's people, one of the things we did was to sing them a song, and they'd all heard of Amazing Grace. And so the four or five in our team would stand up on the platform and uh, sing them in English, because they'd heard the tune. They were pleased to hear us sing it even in English, and they they knew the words in their own language, uh, of Amazing Grace. And it will somewhat shock or amuse our musicians here at the church that I was one of those four or five singing Amazing Grace to many churches. I think I sung carefully underneath the volume of other people singing. And as we there, we were there going to these different churches, some of them would start meeting at 9 a.m. and then keep on meeting to 12 noon. I was struck by their attitude to gathered worship. And the phrase that came to my mind over those months was the following. These people would crawl over broken glass to get to church. For who we worship is revealed by the way we worship which is shown by our attitude to the Word in worship. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we do pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would draw our hearts to you. And as we pray that, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would therefore draw our hearts to your Word by your Spirit. Help us, Lord, to encourage one another this morning. 
to follow you. And we pray, Lord, that um, you would indeed revive worship in this land, gathered worship. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.